Welcome back to American Graffiti, one song at a time. I am your DJ, Doris, and today my guest is Brad. Hey, Brad. Hey, how you doing? Uh, really excited to be back. Good. Did you have a long commute today? <laughs> Here's, you know, it's funny because because of the world we're in right now, I have been uh, working from home for a while, and the kids. I have three kids. My little guys, my twins, who are going to be nine pretty soon, will joke around me about how bad traffic is walking upstairs to my uh, home office. I'm usually blocked by my dog, Boomer, a uh, very uh, rambunctious golden retriever. Is like, is Boomer blocking your traffic? He's like, yeah, we've told this joke for the last nine months. All well, right, guys. It, it gets old after nine months, I guess. <laughs> it does. <laughs> Well, I have a little rambunctious uh, dog here as well. Right now, he's being a good boy, though. What breed? He is a mixture of a French bulldog and a um, a Czech Russell Terrier. Oh, that's 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 a dog with some energy. Yes, it is. His name's Chewy. Chewy, that's a good name. Yeah, good name, good dog. We're going on a not-so-incredible journey in this scene. We're actually going to a junkyard. But there's a dog there, so yep. we have a connection. There's a dog there. It all ties there. together. Yeah, it all ties together. So John and Carol pull up to the junkyard, and John climbs the fence. It's very friendly with the guard dog at the junkyard. Doesn't look like the most vicious dog ever. They're very well acquainted, I think. And then they're kind of walking around looking at dead cars and talking about dead people. It, it, really, it's so interesting where you have... This couldn't be any more different than the previous scene because the previous scene was definitely comedic relief mm. and this was a sort of serious scene. Uh, it, it's it's a nice actor piece. The only thing keeping it from being perfect is it's not particularly well lit so you don't see the facial expressions as much but uh, a really fun scene, a very young Mackenzie Phillips. Yeah, she was like 12 or 13 in that one. You know, Mackenzie Phillips, God, probably best known for her work on One Day at a Time and then uh, just the revelations that she had a terrible life behind the scenes. Mm, she she didn't have an easy uh, childhood, I guess. Well, being the child of superstars. Yeah, it was it uh, from the Mamas and the Papas? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, John Phillips and Susan Adams? Uh, and so very interesting seeing her. She she looked so young, and you have John who looks so mature next to her. But and, and give me your opinion here. When you're watching this scene, despite the difference in maturity and the way they look, and he looks like a guy who's been around the block a few times and more experienced, and she looks so young. He he doesn't at this scene doesn't feel like a malicious presence towards her like you, you feel like she's okay even though she's in a junkyard with a guy who looks like you know maybe you should have a whistle to bring other people uh, attention <laughs> well he's made sure that he doesn't want anything from her in that vein i think even though she's kind of coming on to him a little bit they toned it down in the final film but it's much more present in the script version in the script this scene is also longer but we can talk about that a little bit later i have this feeling this is like cousins or brother and sister and he's kind of trying to impart a little bit of wisdom on her now so there's a brotherly affection that Very, you're feeling yeah it's a really it's an interesting scene and knowing how 
what we learn in the post credits, you know, him talking about these people not surviving car accidents is very interesting. One thing that struck me, the cars in this junkyard were gorgeous. Yeah, most of them that actually the ones that we can see, they don't look trashy or, or like junk at all. I kind of want to know how they build that from from a set point of view. How how do you build a set of a junkyard with classic cars that you probably don't have available as junk? Yeah, it, you feel like you could. This is something, especially because it's a nighttime scene. It's not particularly well lit. Like you could get away with, hey, just everything rusty. Try to pull off anything that looks modern on the cars and we're probably okay. And that's not what they did. I mean, these are... Really beautiful era specific cars, no rust. Everything looked like it had a fresh paint job mm. and stacked on top of each other. And you know, I mean, today, if you watch a behind the scenes on Avengers Endgame and you see them filming, you're going to see that there's a little bit, there's a little bit of props and a little bit of dirt on the ground when they're talking, but everything behind them is all green screen. Yeah. And it's going to be CGI'd in. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, usually it's, you know, Lucas that does that with uh, <laughs> Skywalker Ranch, but no, that's not what happened here. That they had to put every car, every piece of junk, and every bit of dirt, every rock had to be placed there. And uh, for not a big scene, it's not like this is the big climax of the story, uh, a lot of time, attention, and I'm sure a decent amount of money for a movie that had a pretty small budget was was put into this. Maybe they were uh, kind of relying that people would concentrate on, on what they were saying on, on the conversation and not so much on the background. But I'd really like to know how they pulled that off. So we're going into the scene on the last bit of the howl of the wolfman. So it kind of adds to the creepiness a bit, I think. Because, of course, this is one of the few scenes in the movie where there is no music. Because all the music that we hear is either coming from a car radio or a band playing at a school ball or jukebox at the drive-in. We only hear the wind howl, literally the wind howl in this scene. And there was sort of, now there was a transfer because in the last scene you, you heard Wolfman Jack howl. Mm -hmm. And it sort of transfers here. I'm curious, do you have any familiarity with that DJ Wolfman Jack? Besides American Graffiti and then listening to old radio shows of him on the internet and even earlier when I was a kid, they had kind of reruns of his show on the American Forces radio that we could still listen to in Europe. But other than that, just never live, of course, and, and never really knowing who that person is. He's a real interesting character because... And it still happens that the, the DJs who, because their shows end up being broadcast nationally and sometimes internationally, Dick Clark, I think, is the prototype for that, where Dick Clark became a tastemaker in music because he would DJ and then he would have his, his dance show. And that transferred to him doing, like, uh, in the U.S., he would do, every year, would do the... Um, the ball drop. Yeah, the ball drop. And it still happens, Ryan Seacrest, who started as and still does DJ he does a top 40 every week, uh, was able to work that over to becoming a TV presence and a producer. And But Wolfman Jack was different where it wasn't like he has movie star good looks. He has a, an interesting, very raspy voice. Uh, he definitely was a musical tastemaker at the time. Mm -hmm. I do remember he had a Saturday morning cartoon when I was younger. Mm, I don't know that one. It was 
so weird because they had all the cartoon tropes where I think he had like a sidekick monkey or some sort of animal and would have these wacky adventures. But then in between the wacky adventures, he would do little, uh, would play part, clips of videos and give background trivia on Madonna, Tom Petty, whoever was popular at the time. And it was so weird because he would voice it and he has a real distinctive great voice, but not what you would consider like a soothing baritone. It was very raspy. And it was just a weird thing. It's like, what What about Wolfman Jack screams to you, kids Kids want to see this guy every Saturday morning when they're eating their cereal in between cartoons about Care Bears and cartoons about Star Wars droids? Huh. Nothing, actually. <laughs> no, yeah, not, not even a little bit. Yeah, of course, I can't comment on that because I've never seen it. I remember vaguely, it was a completely fine Saturday morning cartoons. They were, by and large, terrible. <laughs> They're not supposed to be good. They're just supposed to sell toys and cereal. Yeah, and just kind of keep you occupied until your parents wake up. Right. Okay, Um. no, I only got to know the Wolfman through this movie. And when did I first see American Graffiti? I must have been like 14. So I was kind of out of the age bracket for Saturday morning cartoons as well. And we didn't really have Saturday morning cartoons in Germany when I was uh, younger. Because usually, I mean, TV didn't start around uh, until around 11 a.m. in the morning. Otherwise, we would get static or reruns. That all started when a private TV, because I remember being like 14 or 15, we only had three TV channels and um, they were all public TV stations. So we didn't have any private TV stations until I was a teenager. And then the, the cartoon in the morning thing began kind of slowly. We have them now. We have everything. Oh yeah, I remember when um when I was growing up being at the tail end of the everything was just broadcast TV. So you had three channels, uh, and then you would have the PBS, the the public access channel, and then you would have the UHF channels, and those were often just reruns of old. Three Stooges movie shorts and stuff like that, you know. And then I remember being like the first family on my block because we lived in the middle of nowhere and we had terrible reception and being one of the first ones to get cable and how different cable was then. So it was like a weird time to be alive where, and you know, now my kids have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, I didn't grow up with Saturday morning cartoons. I grew up with Saturday evening shows. Those were reruns of like really old silent westerns and the old 1930s Flash Gordon stuff. Oh, really? That I grew up with. Yeah. So that is my connection to George Lucas, kind of. <laughs> Because I know where he was coming from. One of the projects I had worked on before, I have dabbled in uh, the movie by minute world. Uh, and I did a Flash Gordon minute where me and my friend Eric Deutsch talked about the uh, delightful 1980s movie Flash Gordon, which took a really weird, fun, surreal take on those uh, those old movie serials. I have a lot of affection for Flash Gordon. <laughs> Yeah, still do. You can catch them on YouTube sometimes. I still kind of get a nostalgic feeling and, and I watch one or two because they're really corny, but yeah. Well, the scene that we're watching, I don't know if you should talk about because it's kind of spoilery. There's a whole lot of foreshadowing in this one. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really tragic when you realize what happens to John later. Yeah, and he kind of talks about this guy who died in an accident, and he says, it's sad if, if it hits someone who didn't do anything wrong, who, who didn't cause it himself. It's not his fault. And then, of course, you get to know at the end that John is killed by a drunk driver. Yeah, never mind that he's resurrected in the sequel to this movie, but... <laughs> The less said about the sequel, the better. That was exactly. definitely... <laughs> yeah. But 
let's let's stick with this one movie and supposedly he's killed just a year later and then he also says something like um, about another accident that happened like 10 years earlier and a lot of people were killed because they were watching a race and the spectators were killed in that accident and he says it's tough when they take someone with him and that also kind of foreshadows the scene at the end in the race because of course Laurie is in the car with Falfa so it is kind of a really somber scene it, it really is unusual for this movie I think there's a thing and I've heard my parents talk about it where you don't everybody knows someone or someone of someone who was in a bad accident in high school my best friend from like 8 to 16 was in a devastating accident where he's he survived but sadly they had a head-on collision with a gentleman who didn't and because you know in, in America you get you can get your driver's license when you're 16 and it turns out 16 year olds are really dumb <laughs> and it takes a long time to really become respons- a responsible driver and then you also have as we talked a little bit about uh, last time a lot of times you have drunk drivers and people just being careless and it was worse in the 60s and the cars were a lot heavier and a lot of times were a lot more powerful and also, they didn't have safety measures. Yeah. No seat belts, no airbag. No seat belts, no airbags. I mean, my father, it wasn't until he was in his like mid-50s where finally, after a couple decades of me and my sister nagging him, he started wearing a seatbelt because it was just something you didn't do. And I remember when I was in high school taking driver's ed, just all the lectures and videos, video presentations about you need to wear a seatbelt, you need to wear a seatbelt, you need to wear a seatbelt, and laws passing that if you didn't wear a seatbelt, they were the cops were legally allowed to pull you over and ticket you for not doing so. And now it seems like the most natural thing. Mm. You just put your seatbelt on. No one argues about it. No one has odd feelings about it. But it really was a big deal getting that mindset to change because, you know, accidents that would be considered pretty, relatively minor now because the vehicles were so much more powerful, heavier, and because people weren't wearing seatbelts and there weren't airbags, could be deadly. And everyone of my parents' generation, they knew someone who had an accident and went through a windshield and that was either lost their life or were profoundly injured and, you know, everyone knew one guy who their head went through a windshield and for the next two years was picking fragments of glass out of their scalp because of how bad it was. Mm. And it happened to George. I mean, he wrapped his racer around a tree and was almost killed when he was like 17. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's That's another thing. Street racing... I know we talked yesterday about how the world presented in the movie is specifically, you know, the guy behind the counter chasing after someone and just firing wildly into the night and how that's a little overstated. And I don't want to say that street racing was as prevalent as it was in this world, but but it was there. It, it was a thing. Uh, my father was a semi-professional drag racer, and he would tell stories of just driving all up and down the East Coast of the U.S., from Florida all the way up to Maine for weekend race events. And because it was a pretty Wild West sport at the time, eventually he got more money and more professionalism followed suit and more safety measures but he he told me once oh god he he could still get arrested for for how stupid this was him and his buddies they would um have trailers for their race cars and they would always have like a beat up station wagon pulling it and they would uh come up route 95 in uh, uh that goes all up and down the east coast and they would stop 
before a tunnel, they would pull their cars off and drag race through the tunnel to see who was faster through the tunnel and also just make cool sounds and stuff. <laughs> and oh, my dad's like, we, we, we should have gotten arrested or shot for being so dumb. Yeah. At least he's, he is around to tell the tale and, and he learned from it. Yeah. It, it's it, my father. <laughs> And of course, this is maybe not the best parenting technique, although my father was a great, is a great dad, but he would do a lot of telling us really fun stories from his childhood and then following up was like, now that was really dumb and you shouldn't do that. It's like, <laughs> tell me what the message here is, old man, because I don't understand. Yeah. What is the message of this scene, though? Why is it there? I guess it's a thing where it puts a little bit of a dark cloud over John, where he seems a little bit resigned to hey, that could be my future, mm. like he knows a little bit. And also, I think you're right, he does feel this affection for this young woman and sort of opening her eyes about she is peripherally involved in a pretty, you know, in a scary time where people get hurt and giving her a bit of a warning without specifically doing so. Because he can't tell people directly stuff when they're that age. She seems smitten a bit with the race of persona that he is. And he's kind of giving her like, Hey, I'm still around because I am not that stupid like some other people are. Because I can take myself out of a situation. He comes across as a very kind of thoughtful person in the scene. Not in every other scene in this movie, but in this scene, you really think that he is not the one who races at any cost. He's not going to win at any price. Yeah, and that is probably because he's still around. Yeah, he, he understands that the race is a race. Yeah, you know, he's not going full fast and furious, living a quarter mile at a time or anything crazy like that. Mm. I mean, she asks him, have you ever been in an accident? He says, well, come close to being in, in, in some, I almost had rollovers, but I know when to kind of take my foot off the gas. Yeah, this is, he likes this life. He likes being part of it, but he doesn't want to give his life for it. Mm. Which increases the tragedy that later he ends up, you know, this, this situation ends up what it is. Yeah. As I said, in the script, the scene is longer. It's like the second half of the conversation has been cut. And Carol takes John's hand and they're walking hand in hand. And she says, I want to, I would love to see you race sometime. And then they walk like um, boyfriend and girlfriend. And when John notices that, he shakes her off, says, you're too young for that. None of that. It's not going to happen. And she kind of comes on to him. He says, no, in a couple of years, maybe, but not not now. And then she kind of goes back into, I'm a sullen teenager and I'm now going to pout. And she locks herself in the car and she doesn't let him back in. So she's kind of, uh, until he says, well, Carol is not um, a stupid teenager. And like kind of a repetition of a scene that we already had where um, she kind of threatens to, to tell the cop that has been pulling them over um, that he tried to rape her. So she's kind of blackmailing him again to say what she wants to hear. And I'm so glad they cut that. I'm so glad they cut that because that would have taken the impact of the scene totally away. Oh, it would have turned it into a completely different scene. Yeah. It would have changed it would have changed her character so much. And she's so likable and sweet in this scene. And it's okay for her to have a crush on the older guy who she she has a crush on an older guy who's treating her like an adult. And that's a very real thing when you're that age. Mm-hmm. When you're when you're at this terrible age between thirteen and eighteen. I think it's very powerful, especially for a young woman that age, when you see a guy who, you know, 
actuality is only a couple years older than you, but that you see as an adult who doesn't treat you as a child, it can be really powerful. And it's something that when you're the guy in that situation, you have to be conscious of. And I, I remember when I was... Uh, I was probably 24 and I was working on a play. I, I've, I've done theater for most of my life. I was involved in a musical production of Scrooge. And I remember there was a very nice young woman. I think she was 16. She was definitely like between that 15 to 17 year old. And she, the poor thing, she was stuck in a situation where she wasn't a grown up. She, you know, she wasn't going to the bar with the, the, the grown ups after rehearsal, but she wasn't one of the kids that one of the 10 year old, 12 year olds. And I I treated her like an adult because, honestly, she was more mature than most of the adults in this show. And I remember there was one time she said to me, she looked at me and she said, he's like, you know, everyone here treats me like I'm one of the kids, but not you. And I'm like, oh, I got to be really careful here. Yeah. And I, I would like to think I was because I treated her with respect and everything, but also knowing it's like, okay, do not put yourself in a situation where you're alone with this girl because because you want to be very careful. You don't want to give anyone the wrong idea or intentions because that's unhealthy for everyone. Exactly. Yeah. John's doing that very well in this scene. And for her to turn that around and blackmailing him, it would remove the sweetness from what we're seeing and would make her manipulative. And I know this expression is used a lot and doesn't really mean what it's supposed to mean, but it would turn her into a manipulative Lolita character. And, and we don't need that. I mean, she's tried that once before and he's kind of brushed her off. And we want to see her mature over the course of this film. And I think this scene adds to that and cutting that second part of it adds to the maturing of her, her kind of recognizing that he is actually a responsible person. And if you had, if they had left this in, this would have totally reversed that effect and kind of destroyed the whole development that we've seen so far. It's a really good scene. And you don't need any more than what we have. I think they cut it at the right place. Yeah. The way this movie is, you just need to, sh to show snippets to give people an idea of the relationships, the interactions, what their world is like. And we talked a little bit about it in the last minute where you don't need to see the robbery that happens. You just need to see, oh my gosh, this craziness is going on and we only see like glimpses of it and then move on to the next scene. Mm -hmm. And obviously this is very different because this is more heartfelt, but just show enough that you understand the dynamic between these characters and then show them again later. And perhaps when you see them next time, everything has progressed a little more uh, or they're in a different place, but you can still, because you got an idea of what's happening now, that works from what you see later. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, the scene ends with the wolfman again. Sneaking around with the wolfman is what he says. And that is exactly what they're doing. They're sneaking around. But they're not the only ones sneaking around. Wolfman Jack being what ties everything together works so well because I think it's a sort of a timeless idea where growing up, Many people had that personality, be it a radio personality or a late or a local late night personality or whatever it is that we all can sort of relate to. Now, Wolfman Jack was a national, a, a national character, but he's not really, he's playing a different guy, really, mm. or he's a different version of himself. But, you know, I remember, uh, Mike and Manny in the morning listening to that while my mom would drive me and my sister to school and all the kids at school would have would, would share a couple of jokes from it or Howard Stern or the Bella in the morning in Philadelphia if those personalities were big enough they would almost become a background chatter to 
a certain area. And using Wolfman Jack in this way to sort of help bump the scenes and then being clever about it. Like, little things he says sort of tie in to the plot that's happening at the time. Yeah, like the background um, comment on stuff. Just like the song's kind of subtly commenting on what is happening, he's also subtly commenting on what goes on. Because, of course, they follow his voice through the night. So, I'm curious, Doris, for for your feelings on this. You have this great scene, and they're talking, and there's not, like, a lot of action or motion or anything. They could have incorporated music into this scene. Do you think it works better like it is, where they're just sort of let the, the ambient noise from the area fill the background? Or do you think they missed an opportunity of having a slow, gorgeous song in, uh, playing while while they talked? I like it without music, because it is one of the few moments where we don't hear any music. And of course, um, they kind of would have had to engineer how we come to listen to the music, like the car with the doors open and the radio on standing um, close to that, because all the music we hear is in the film. All the characters hear the music as well. It's not just the audience. So there is no score, like in a traditional score in that film. And it would have totally broken that um, feeling of reality if there had been music there. So I like it this way. Yeah, I'm I bet there was a discussion about, hey, can we have music here? And I bet, who knows, for all I know, that they had scenes of this where they showed them walking to a, a groovy kind of love or something. I, I'm a little dicey on my era-specific music, but like different songs that could have worked and realized, that, like, no, let's let's make this feel different by not having the radio on the background. And you're right, don't screw with the reality that we've established where every time there's music, it's coming from a car or wherever. Mm. So the characters are hearing the music that the audience is hearing. So, yeah, it it does make the scene feel very different from the one we just saw, where the music was so perfect and great and added to the scene. But this scene is so different because it's not comedic. It's straight ahead. A little sad. Mm. So just letting letting the dialogue and the performances stand on their own. Yeah, I think this totally works. And sometimes, and, and George Lucas does that in his other movies as well. He does it in Star Wars. He does it in Raiders or other indie films. Um, sometimes the scene needs to stand for itself. Sometimes you just don't need a score. Never mind that he wouldn't have had the money to pay for a real movie score for this film besides the, the licensing fees for all the songs they had. So, But sometimes not having any music is the, is the best choice. And I think in this scene, it is the best choice. Yeah, pretty much the budget on this movie was a huge percentage was spent on the the, the music rights like because more than ten percent I think. Whew. I think they had like seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars of budget. I mean, just imagine that seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars and eighty thousand dollars went for the music rights alone. So. And it really wouldn't have worked. It's like um I don't know, do you remember the show WKRP in Cincinnati? No, since I've never been to Cincinnati. <laughs> <laughs> It was a sitcom that took place in a Cincinnati radio show uh, station. In the original broadcast, they would play Led Zeppelin, and they would come back from a scene. He's like, "Well, that was Led Zeppelin, whole lot of love." And they would be playing the end of the song, and then they would have their wacky bits, and then they would go into the next song. Is like, and now Eric Clapton, "Wonderful Tonight." The problem was when it came time for reruns or releasing on DVD Ooh, or whatever. Yeah, they didn't have the music rights. They only had it for when it went on air, but not for 
syndication or when it went out on, on other media. So they had to replace it. Yeah. They replaced it with all this generic do 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 wah music. And it, it, it really gutted the show because it was a show in a radio station and the characters were all music fans. Yeah, I mean, it is. I don't know that show you're talking about because uh, we have a lot of the American stuff coming over to us, but not everything. But um, I can't imagine if it is a show that in the dialogue of the characters references the songs that you then don't hear because of music rights. That kind of kills the dialogue. I only know another one that is Beverly Hills 90210 where there was the same thing. So if you watch episodes of that on a rerun or on DVD, it has totally different music. And sometimes it just kills the mood of the scene. Because, of course, the music was chosen to kind of reflect a certain mood. And that is no longer there. Yeah, teen shows really would get hit hard by that. Because if you're a show focusing on teens, you would music's use, a big part of that. Yeah, and, and you use the music that is in right now. You use the most uh, recent hits and the charts. And that if that is gone... That is really difficult. What was the um, Dawson's Creek used a Paula Cole song for the, the, the opening theme? And I know then, then they ran into a thing where when it came time for DVD releases and reruns, Paula Cole, yeah, I, I, and I don't know the specifics, but it, you know, apparently she wanted money and they didn't want to pay the money that she wanted paid. They found this very generic, profoundly mediocre song to become the new theme song. And the first time you see it in a rerun, you're like, what the hell? Because that song, it almost felt like Kevin Williamson, who wrote that show, created and wrote that show, used that song as a creative starting point where it really encapsulated the feel, the wistfulness, and the soaring lyrics that he tried to emulate that throughout the tone of the show. And when you don't have that, it's like, huh, well, it's... It puts you on a weird first foot when you're tr when you're watching something when you know that isn't what was there and it doesn't feel right. Mm. And I mean, it, it is bad when it's just like setting the mood for a scene. But if the characters are actually referencing a song and the song is not there, I mean, that is like, ugh. What are they talking about? Come on. When they say the Beatles, uh, you know, Sergeant Peppers and the music is do 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 do, that, that, that'll hurt. That'll, that'll give you a whiplash. Exactly. Yeah, so I, I guess that show didn't do well on reruns. <laughs> they had a lot of problems. And also, it was a 70s, 80s show. It didn't age real well. Uh, I'm curious, Doris, what American shows that came over, they came over to Germany, what are some American shows that really, you know, popped culturally for you? For you and, you know, for, for just in, in Germany in general. Well. I, I'm asking you to speak entirely for the country of Germany. <laughs> Well, so for my generation, yeah, I mean, Beverly Hills 90210 certainly did, teen show-wise, but that is basically the only one that I watched. So soap opera stuff was big here, so like Dallas, Dynasty made it big, Star Trek made it big, what else was kind of a blockbuster, all the Western stuff in the 60s, Gunsmoke, um, and then later on... 
I kind of lost touch with the teen stuff. But then, of course, like, say, from 1985 onwards, we basically got everything. So, of course, we have Dawson's Creek. We have uh, the OC. We have all the stuff that you had. What else is, is really big in Germany? Of course, oh, right now, all the stuff that is on Netflix and Amazon Prime, we get that as well. But it's it sounds like comedy stuff, stuff that would rely on wordplay, is doesn't catch hold. And it makes sense because a lot of humor can be lost in translation. I mean, we, we, we have Seinfeld and we have friends and all the stuff and they have their fan base. It's just, I can't comment on it because it was nothing that I watched very much. I mean, you can translate a lot of stuff. And then I know German dubbing writers are very clever in that regard. If a joke doesn't translate, they will just put their own jokes in there. Because um, if there's one thing that is a very busy industry in Germany, it's dubbing stuff because we dub everything. So they're kind of practiced in, in putting jokes in the German audiences will um, get where the English spoken speaking thing will fall flat. The only thing I kind of where it failed is UK humor. So they tried to, to dub the um, Monty Python sketches and it just didn't work. So it was one of the few programs that you could actually watch in the original version subtitled because it just didn't work in translation. It was lost in translation. Those Monty Python skits and bits are so British. Yes. And that just doesn't translate well. I'm always curious about that because humor from culture to culture can be so different. And there can be some stuff that's universal. But, you know, the, I've heard creators talk about the challenges of going from one culture to the other. Uh, there's an American show called uh, Everybody Loves Raymond. Mm-hmm. We had that. Well, we have that. The creator of that show talked about how in Russia, they wanted to create their own Russian version and not just dubbing over the existing show. Like redoing it in Russian, yeah. He says, I go over to Russia and the first scene they have is the the wife walking down the steps in this gorgeous gown. And I pulled him aside and I said, you can't have her. Work. She's a housewife who's sort of cranky and put upon. You can't have her wearing this beautiful gown and having her makeup and her hair done and he says they they just look at me it's like but don't you think she looks beautiful it's like of course she looks beautiful the point is she isn't supposed to look beautiful it completely undercuts the humor and the motivation of the character because the whole thing is she's sort of tired and cranky and she thinks her husband and his family are idiots and if she looks gorgeous like she's having you know that she has this wonderful lavish lifestyle it doesn't work he did a documentary talking about how the challenges he did trying to get the different humor mm -hmm. and ideas across to this different culture and he he had to change as well as they had to change. Yeah. Well, there's one cranky housewife that translated well into German. That was Roseanne. That was a big hit here. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. And um, I can think of another one because he said they had to redo it in Russian with Russian actors. We have one thing that was based on an American show that was based on a British show. And that is All in the Family. Oh, yes, 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 Yeah, yes, and yes, we yes. have our own German version of that. That is... That, that was a massively popular show. And it's funny because it's a show that was done in the 70s that you would actually have a tough time doing now on network TV because of how racist and ignorant mm. Archie was. I could see the character and the concepts being really popular, but because... So much of the stuff he would talk about was very politically specific to the states. I could see the value in redoing that, taking those ideas and the concepts and the character types and doing a homegrown version. 
Yeah, because of course the setting was the same. You have this uh, really conservative, bordering on right wing uh, older guy, and always having his political discussions with his son-in-law, who is a social democrat. So uh, lefty and righty talking, and, and they still do reruns of it sometimes. And you wouldn't know if if you didn't know that it was based on an American TV show. You wouldn't know that because it is entirely about German politics in the 1970s. Well, kind of like how do cultural things translate into other cultures? This is why I find it interesting that I latch onto American graffiti, although there's is something that total culture, the car culture, the racing culture, the cruising culture is something that I have never experienced myself. And also my parents have never experienced that because when they were that age in the early 60s, they didn't have cars. They didn't have any money. It was a totally different culture in this country, of course. And still, I kind of can get it. Yeah. So in, in this case, here it works. It translates even though your own experience is totally different because it is about leaving home, growing up, finding friends or leaving friends behind and like being in love the first time. So the setting is, is, is it doesn't matter because the feelings are the same. Yeah, the interactions you have with other kids, uh, young adults at that age can be feel very universal. And just the idea of coming towards the end of your high school experience and knowing how drastically lives will change and relationships between those people will change afterwards. Cars are a very American thing uh, in a lot of parts of this country because it's it's a big sprawling country. And when I was 16, I had a car. My parents bought me my first car before my 16th birthday so that as soon as I turned 16, I could get my driver's license and I could drive it because where I grew up, I was about an hour outside of Philadelphia. I was a half hour away from the closest movie theater, the closest mall. Like if I didn't have a car, my parents, either I was just going to walk, which wasn't going to happen because I was very far away from everything, or my parents were going to have to drive me everywhere. And they didn't want that because they wanted to have, they want to do with their own stuff. <laughs> and I didn't want that because the last thing you want when you're 16 is mommy and daddy driving you to the movie on a date. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we you didn't want to have that um, in Germany as well, but you just have to accept it because you're not allowed to drive until you're 18. So, you know, because the country was so big and sprawling, I mean, that was just very common. Yeah. And uh, I was also, cars were, I think, cheaper in the States and gas, I think, was definitely cheaper in oh, the States. So definitely is cheaper in the States. It, it became possible to do this stuff. Of course, then you end up with a bunch of really stupid 16-year-olds on the road, which presents its own problems. Yeah. Well, you can drive and not drink. We can drink and not drive at 16. <laughs> <laughs> These are the trade-offs. These are yep. the trade-offs. Positives and negatives for everything. Okay, Brad, final thoughts. I'm really, I really appreciate you bringing, having me on the show. Uh, I've had a great time talking. These are two neat scenes because they couldn't be any more different from each other. This is a movie, I don't know that it gets the love it deserves. It was a very successful movie. It launched a lot of careers. And it's funny because we didn't have any of the scenes with Cindy Williams, Ron Howard, Richard Dreyfuss. Like the people who became stars from this movie, we didn't talk about. Uh, you know, Mackenzie Phillips had, has had a nice career. Yeah, Charles Martin Smith had a nice career as well. But definitely not the not Harrison Ford careers. No, or Richard no Dreyfuss one careers. had Harrison Ford careers in this movie. Yeah, it's I mean, Ron Howard, but more behind the camera than in front of it. Yeah, at the time when this this movie was made, he was probably the biggest star. Yeah. I mean, Howard was, you know, at this point, best known as Opie from The Andy Griffith Show, and then Happy Days was 
upcoming, and this was a lot of prototype for his character in that. You know, Richard Dreyfus was starting to build his career. Cindy Williams also taking this character and a lot some tweaks, but then became Shirley from Laverne and Shirley. But it's just so neat seeing these sort of very different scenes, just how warm this movie is. Mm. And even though there's some hijinks, especially in our first minute in, in minute or in the, our previous episode, there's still a warmth and a likability and a relatability. And uh, it's funny because these aren't really things that you think of with Lucas. He was a completely different director and uh, some some really cool stuff. And Doris, I, I just, again, I got to thank you. Thank you for letting me par- be part of the fun. You're so welcome. It was really fun having you on. Okay, Brad, you want to plug some of your own work? Sure. Uh, as I mentioned yesterday, I am the host and co-founder of the Cosmic Geppetto podcast, basically where geeky people talk positively about geeky stuff. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Cosmic G Pod. I also was the host, a co-host of a, a couple minute by minute excursions, specifically Flash Gordon Minute, where we broke down the 1980 classic film Woman at a Time. And I produced Escape from New York Minute, and uh, which was a lot of fun when we talked about that. Uh, Kurt Russell, his sci-fi action film. And, you know, I, I recommend everyone, if you have a chance, give us a listen. And also, this has been a lot of fun. And I hope everyone, uh, if, if the people who by chance followed me from where I come from have been listening to me talk with Doris, I hope everyone subscribes to this because this has been great. And uh, Doris, you've been a delight to talk to. Thank you so much. You've been a delight to talk to as well. You out there, if you want to talk about American Graffiti some more, you come to Facebook and you come to join our group, Mel's Listeners Drive-In, or you go to Twitter or Instagram and you can find us at VCR Privileges, our mother company, producing a lot of other minute-by-minute podcasts, but you will find us there as well. So, it's been great, and I hope you'll join us again. He's really fast, isn't he?